Welcome to Hazel's Story, an epic saga podcast. We're here to dive deep into the panels and pages of Brian K. Vaughn and Fiona Staples' comic book masterpiece, unpacking all the amazing characters, themes, and weirdness in this grand space opera. I'm Alan. And my name's Sabu. And here we are, back once again, starting a new volume, volume five, coming on the heels of the incredibly rough volume four, yes. where Marco has been separated from Alana and Hazel, and now we get to see how the fuck everyone is going to deal with this. Yeah. I remember texting you earlier in the week while I was reading. This is like a weird volume that has seemed to completely slip my mind. I don't remember originally reading this, so it was kind of fun to dive back into this as if it were new. Yeah, no, for sure. Before we get to the read-through, though, it's time for our regular reminder that this episode of Hazel's Story will only discuss things that happen in Saga up through Chapter 27, so unlike our quick reaction episodes, there will be no spoilers for anything that happens in the series after that. Also, we love to hear from our listeners, so please send us an email to hazelstory at loreparty.com. There's two S's in the middle, hazelstory at loreparty.com, with any thoughts or episode ideas, or if you think we're just like the smartest guys you've ever listened to on a podcast. <laughs> Especially that last one. And actually, speaking of listener messages, we wanted to share one today because we got a really great message from a listener named Xavier from Montreal, who wrote in with some ideas based off of these two other Harry Potter podcasts that he listened to, Harry Potter and the Sacred Text and Witch Please, which are great names, by the way. This is what Xavier wrote in his message to us. In a nutshell, Harry Potter and the Sacred Text pick a random theme every week and read that week's chapters through the lens of that theme. Which Please is a bit more scholarly and picks different themes, literary approaches, and lenses through which they analyze the Harry Potter books. Each book gets six to nine episodes. What I'd love to hear from you guys is a slight variation on that. I think going through every chapter would probably be tedious and unnecessary since most are only 24 pages long, but I'd love more deep dives on the themes explored in Saga. For an obvious example, family is a very prominent theme in the book, and could easily fill a few episodes, either updating our understanding of how family is important to the characters through the different volumes, or focusing in turn on different factions slash family units. Wow. That's a great idea. Yes. There are so many thematic through lines in this story that uh, thematic exploration episodes is an amazing new episode format that we should try. So thanks for that, X. Absolutely appreciate it. For the rest of our listeners, Take a cue from Xavier or Xavier. I realize I should have asked how to pronounce your name, and I'm real sorry, man. But really appreciate you <laughs> writing in and uh, want to yeah. know what are themes that other folks think of. Family is a great one. What are other themes that would be great to dig into? Let us know by writing to hazelstory at loreparty.com. We love getting these emails, and we always write back to every email. And also love to include what folks write in into our episodes, always with, of course, the writer's permission. For sure. Okay. It's time to dive into today's reading, the first half of Volume 5. As usual, we're going to start with a brief summary of today's three chapters. Then we'll dive into a couple of key takeaways. And finally, we'll wrap up by sharing our favorite panels and our favorite quotes from today's reading. So we'll get to all of that after a short break. Don't go anywhere. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. 
With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome back. So first thing, just a little bit of context to know about chapter 25 is that when it came out, it marked kind of like peak saga fever in the comics world. Mm -hmm. So first off, there's the fact that most comic books get a special issue for issue number 25, issue number 50, issue number 75, issue number 100, etc. There's usually something special you get, like a special cover in the 90s. They were big into holograms and shit like that. But when this comic came out, so one, it was special issue. It gets this amazing wraparound illustrated cover by Fiona Staples that was the front and back of the book wrapped around. But also, mm -hmm. by February 2015, this little indie comic book had like exploded to be one of the biggest and widest appeal comics that there was, which was kind of a big deal because it was also as Marvel was ascendant. So like the comics world was like all about Marvel and superheroes, but Image Comics had this little indie book of saga that people were also really into. So as far as all like the sort of markers of audience interest, Google searches, Twitter posts, whatever, everything was peaking right before this chapter came out. Yeah. And I think... A little bit of that explains why we get at the beginning of chapter 25 what feels like some sort of reintroduction moments for the book. We get a little more exposition and kind of what feels like a reset to me. I don't know. What did you think, Abu? Yeah, absolutely. This is also, I'm an anime guy, and a lot of anime shows will do this as well. Like once they get through certain arcs of the story or hit a certain like halfway point, you'll just get like an entire episode that's all recap. It just catches you up on the story thus far. It's almost like this introduction point to new watchers. And the start of chapter 25 today feels very similar. It mm -hmm. feels like a recap and a catch-up moment for people who are now jumping into Saga. And in the story itself, we've sort of met a lot of our main characters and we're starting this like second big arc of the story. So it feels like a natural place for, first of all, people to jump in and for a bit of a like, in case you missed it, here's a summary of events so far. Totally. Which is exact exactly where chapter 25 starts. Because mm -hmm. we get a lot of panels and pages that are just Hazel narration. Mm -hmm. Hazel is walking us through quite a bit of exposition. We learn once again about the war between Landfall and Reef. And she explains how the war started with conscripts. And the fighting was on these home planets. The war was very real for the citizens of both the moon and the planet itself. But then over time, it eventually shifted to this all-volunteer force from landfall. Quote, almost all of them were poor as shit, Hazel explains in her narration. We then find out that this war kept expanding beyond just the planet and the moon, and both sides started roping in other people from other planets, from other cultures, into the conflict. You had to pick a side. Were you with Wreath? Were you with Landfall? And eventually this war engulfed much of the known galaxy. Yeah, and I think the part that was interesting to me is there's obviously some clear parallels that Brian has been making all along to military culture in the US and expansionist wars and stuff. And so you get that thing where it's like, oh, the volunteer force is made up of people who are all quite poor, which 
has some direct parallels to the U.S. Army, right? It's an all-volunteer army. Yeah. But a lot of the people who volunteer for the U.S. military do so because they might see that as their only option. And then the other part that I really felt was clear parallel to the U.S. situation was that as the war gets further and further away from the landfall homeworld, people, quote, support the troops, but they don't really care about the war that's happening far away because it doesn't affect their lives, and they don't really care about the veterans at all. Right. Right. The war stops being a thing that's very present. Mm -hmm. And the people on landfall, we get these panels of people just like dancing and partying. And it does parallel a lot of America's own history as well. As long as the war is not happening on our soil, people don't tend to care all that much. Or at least the caring fades over time as the war continues to go on and on for years. And that's exactly what happens on landfall with this war against Wreath. We're then ripped away from all of this exposition and plopped right back into our story. We joined Dengo with just the cutest toddler Hazel wearing the cutest coat. I like, I squealed when I saw this panel. They are on some sort of outpost snow planet. And we also learned that Clara and Alana are trapped in their own ship. They're prisoners of Dengo. Alana is hoping that Marco will come and save them. She thinks that's pretty much their only option at this point. They can't make a move against Dango because it risks Hazel's life, of course. Clara, as usual, very on brand for her, thinks that they have no choice but to make a move. They got to fight. And she makes her case to Alana here. And Alana reluctantly agrees that, yeah, maybe maybe making a move against Dango is the only way they're getting out of this. Totally. Then we zoom away from that group. There's going to be a pattern here in these chapters where we have three groups of heroes in three separate situations. So we zoom away from hero group number one and go to group number two, which is Gwendolyn, the brand, and Sophie with the two sidekicks of Lion Cat and Sweet Boy. And they're on the planet Demi Monde, which is how I've decided to say that, Mm -hmm. where they are searching for the dragon semen that they need to cure the will, (laughs) as one does. So the group manages to find a dragon pretty quickly, I might add, which is great. And the brand also deftly manages to like hook it through the nose with one of those like extendo lances, which is pretty well done. Yeah, hell yeah. With the idea that they're going to give Sophie a chance to try and, this was really graphic, cut open the dragon testicle and catch whatever (laughs) drips out, which I'm like, I guess you'd get some semen, but also seemingly a lot of blood. I don't know. Uh, Anyway, Sophie notices, though, that she can't do that because this dragon does not have boy parts. And then the dragon just like unleashes what can only be described as a tsunami of pee on everyone in the group, like a veritable title. Speaking of graphic. Yeah. (laughs) Of dragon (laughs) urine just covers everybody, which is bad enough. But then you learn from the brand that the reason that the dragon has done that is to mark the group as targets for the dragon's family and they're all of a sudden surrounded by a bunch of dragons who seem like they're gonna kill them so not great not great yeah big yikes i'm glad you had to explain this scene by the way alan because i'm recording from the office today and i don't know how much i should be saying dragon semen out loud (laughs) next up we join our third group of heroes this group consists of prince robot the fourth marco my guy goose and yuma they are all on Prince Robot the Fourth's ship, and they're using Goose as sort of a homing beacon to try and find their families. Goose has this ability to track his walrus cow, Frendo, who we know is with Alana and Hazel and the other group on the snowy planet. Marco and Prince Robot the Fourth clearly are not getting along at all. And in fact, they get so heated in an argument here that 
they almost kill each other until Yuma comes in and breaks them up. We learn that this is not a rare occurrence. This happens a lot, these arguments between the two of them. And this is clearly an alliance of convenience and not something that either of them are huge fans of. Yeah, I remember at the end of the last chapter, we were like, they're mortal enemies. And there's that scene where they're both looking awesome and their fire fits and they're like seemingly they've yeah. aligned together and you're like oh they put all their you know differences aside and it's like no they didn't they just literally posed for that one <laughs> shot but they're ready to murder each other literally at any moment right and to round out this scene we actually also see this really heartbreaking set of panels where marco walks into his room he grabs hazel's favorite doll and we learn that it's been months months since Hazel has seen her father, and it's clearly been a lot for Marco. It, it's clearly fucking him up here. Yeah. And then we get just like a full-on spoiler from Hazel in the narration where she says- Oh my God. That it would be years before Marco uh, and Hazel would see each other again, which what? you know, is was truly a kick in the junk just for Brian K. Vaughn to be like, oh, you think this is sad? They're not gonna see each other for many years. Have fun with that. We don't get to dwell yeah. on that for very long, though, because then we get a shot of what looks like the foot of a giant robot Jaeger, like from Pacific Rim, landing on the ice <laughs> planet. It's like just the yeah. foot, and it's cut <laughs> off at the ankle. And then Alana recognizes that it's the hoof from something called an astronomical, which is some kind of decommissioned landfallian weapon that I absolutely want to see a complete full one of. Never turned down a chance yeah. to see a giant robot in action. Don't get to think about that very long, though, because then Dango comes back inside and tells Alana and Clara that the people on the foot ship are freedom fighters, which gets Alana very concerned that Dango has gotten involved with, quote, the rebellion. And that's not a good thing because the rebellion are clearly like bad people, which is right. a fun nod to Star Wars that like rebels are not always good. <laughs> He then corrects her, though, that they're not the rebellion. I think he says something like rebellions are for teenage girls. These are the, quote, revolution. And the chapter ends on a full page panel of this group of revolutionaries. And to me, they look like, I don't know, knockoff He-Man characters or something. Like there's a snake <laughs> yeah. man and like what looks like a walking tiki torch. It's very unclear. But Fiona just went out on her wild characters for this band of revolutionaries. Yeah. And I'm here for it. Yeah, they feel right out of like a 1980s G.I. Joe's style superhero cartoon. Yep. So next up, we start off chapter 26 in a very different scene where in a gas station or a convenience store that's being robbed at the moment by a masked wreath guy who's got a magic knife. And Marco is also here trying to uh, buy some chips or something, just some road snacks. And the robber is mad that there's not a whole lot of money in the register. He was hoping for a bigger payout today. Marco intervenes, tries to calm him down. They're communicating in blue, the language blue here. And the robber is heated. He calls Marco a loser, tells him to mind his own business. Marco's trying to calm him down, trying to connect with him. Hey, you're a vet. I'm a vet. Let's talk man to man here. The guy's not having it. He tries to stab Marco. <laughs> and, you know, understandably, Marco defends himself. But he goes a little too far. He, he gets the guy on the ground, jumps on top of him and starts beating the shit out of him a bit too much and only stops when Goose comes out of the bathroom mid buttoning up his overall. Very cute. Adorable. This snaps Marco out of whatever blind rage reaction he was in at the moment. His hands are like literally dripping with blood. 
And Prince Robot the Fourth walks in and he's like, well, finish what you started. Kill the guy. Because if he wakes up, he has now seen your face, which is one of the most wanted faces in the galaxy. He's going to tell the constables. Marco, however, doesn't want to kill the guy. They disagree on this and they argue a bit. And then Yuma ultimately tells them to just go back to the ship. She'll handle it. She will wipe the security tapes here in the convenience store and take care of the body. In the final panel, though, we see that perhaps she had an ulterior motive as well because Mm. she takes a little bit of Hershey's chocolate fadeaway off of this guy. (laughs) I I love the continuing just fadeaway as candy, as chocolate. Also just the guy like that she knew that this like guy in his like bad guy vest would have fadeaway tucked away in there. At the end of this scene, we go back to the like outpost snow planet where the last revolution has come out of their boot hoof spaceship thing and alana is freaked the fuck out and we find out very quickly because alana and clara recount some very serious war crimes that these people have committed like bombing a daycare center on landfall and attacking a concert on wreath where they decapitated every single concert goer there so like these guys are real fucked up awful terrorists yeah And Alana tries to reason with Dengo as a parent that these people are too intense. You don't know what you've gotten involved with. And Dengo's just like, you know what? Fuck it. I've come this far. I've got to see this through. He says, quote, the die has already been cast, which is like this great drama line. And to close it all out, we get a tease with some very poignant Hazel narration where she says, quote, being a parent pretty much ensures that you'll never spend another minute alone, unquote, which like. Holy fucking God, is that true? And I'll talk more about this later, but I just was like, I am seen. Yeah, yeah, I I knew. I was like, hmm, I think Alan's going to have some thoughts on this. I don't, but I think Alan will. In the next scene, we rejoin our group of heroes on Demi Monde. Remember them? Dragons? Mm -hmm. Piss? (laughs) They are surrounded at this point by a number of dragons, and the situation is looking dire. Sophie has the absolutely genius idea of trying to talk to the dragons, use the translator rings and talk to them. And it totally works. They end up being able to communicate with the lead dragon, the original one who peed all over them. And Sophie shouts the amazingly universally applicable command, quote, everyone be friendly, (laughs) end quote. (laughs) I love it. This certainly calms the situation down to the point where they're able to talk things out. Mm-hmm. Sophie apologizes, and we learn that actually all of the dragons around them right now are female because there are basically no more male dragons left. They've all been hunted to extinction, or at least close to extinction, because mm-hmm. the female dragon does reveal that there is maybe one guy left. But in her words, she explains that he is, quote, very unkind. <laughs> Which feels like the understatement of the century, I'm sure. Yeah. Before we can learn more about this male dragon, we get yet again another Hazel narration on that topic of parenthood and how it brings all of these weird people into your life. And underneath this narration, we see some panels of a guy who looks a lot like the stock Mm -hmm. aiming a rifle down at Sophie and the rest of the gang. Seems bad. (laughs) Then we shift to Marco's group of heroes back on the ship. And Marco's feeling kind of bummed out about almost beating a guy to death. And he's trying to talk to Yuma about it when he realizes that she's super high. 
And Marco takes this moment to ask Yuma why Alana would have taken Fade away. And we learn from Hi Yuma that it is because, quote, Alana wanted peace, which is kind of a telling moment where maybe Marco for the first time realizes that Alana was going through more stuff than he realized. No time to dwell on that because then we're back on the ice planet where the final revolution Mm -hmm. have now come into the rocket ship tree in all of their 1980s cartoon villain glory. And Alana is very much not okay with this. She starts to scream at the last revolution about staying the fuck away from her kid. The snake man then uses his hypno eyes power to put Clara and Hazel to sleep, which I'm pretty sure is a power that one of the villains on G.I. Joe had in the 1980s. So (laughs) that's pretty cool. The last revolution also then realized that Dango is carrying Prince Robot IV's baby meaning he's Mm. probably the one who killed the princess, which he's worried that they're going to think he's like a bad guy because of that. But instead, that makes them love him way, way more, at which point he's like, "Uh uh-oh, these guys might be psychopathic killers. Who would have known that? (laughs) If only someone had told me minutes ago not to trust these guys. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Then we cut back to the crew on... Uh, Marco and Prince Robot the Fourth ship, and Prince Robot the Fourth is having another nightmare from his PTSD, and it wakes him up just in time to find Marco on the floor, foaming at the mouth, appearing to have OD'd on Fadeaway, and that's just how the uh, chapter ends. Cliffhanger: oh my God. Marco's OD'd, foaming at the mouth, and you're just like, "Fuck!" What a scary image. I cannot believe folks had to wait a month after seeing that image to find out what happened next. Luckily, we don't have to wait a month. We can jump right into chapter 27, which starts in a very different way. We start with a flashback scene of Alana and Marco having sex, or at least trying to. Things aren't quite going well here. Alana is very pregnant, and it looks like they're in that garage all the way back from chapter one. Mm. Alana wants Marco to smack her ass she's talking dirty you know she wants to feel sexy in all of this it's clear that it's they've perhaps been on the run and the with the pregnancy and everything else going on they haven't had a whole lot of time to be intimate like Mm -hmm. they used to that was a big part of their relationship when they first met he doesn't want to because as we learn he's actually traumatized from the time when he was seven and he had beaten up a girl who was apparently a neighbor of some sort, and he found her using fire spells on his puppy. And he reacted. And seems like he overreacted, much in the same way he did with the man in the convenience store in the last chapter. This scene then turns into a classic, oh shit, this is not real, this is a hallucination. Mm -hmm. Saga loves to do this. This has happened time and time again in the story. As naked, pregnant Alana transforms into this like demonic punk conk the doll that hazel loves so much and (laughs) calls marco a a goddamn wife beater which obviously affects him Mm. given all the trauma we're learning about and then uh, a a devil demon thing bursts out of her pregnant stomach it's an absolutely horrific panel then we zoom out of marco's brain to the deck of the ship where prince robot the fourth is standing over Marco and Goose comes down having heard the kerfuffle and he's ready to go with his chopper just like ready to mix it up which is one of the things I love about Goose is that he's always ready to battle. Yuma is also there also very high and she tells Goose through struggling words that they've taken a bad batch of fade away and they have to get out of something called an F spiral otherwise they'll be stuck in their own minds forever. Prince Robot the fourth is like oh well 
fuck it, blow him out an airlock, which <laughs> I like that we're getting more and more just how much Prince Robot IV does not care about fucking anybody, which is some classic royal shit. He's like, none of these people are royal. They're all commoners. Fuck yeah. it, blow him out an airlock. <laughs> Goose says they have to help. And you think at first it's because Goose is like, oh, we have to like help people. But then you realize that Goose is a super pragmatic dude. Yeah. And he's like, we need to save Marco because if we're going to take on Dango, we're going to need Marco's help because Marco is fucking scary as hell. Yeah. Shout out to the panel here where Prince Robot is holding Gus with both hands around his little neck and he still manages to look cute while being strangled. <laughs> yeah, he's all squished up and you're like, oh, <laughs> it's adorable. What isn't adorable is these couple of flashbacks we see next. So we jump into this aforementioned F spiral that Marco is in because of the fadeaway. And we see a war scene where he's cutting down landfall soldiers left and right with his sword. The wings at this point call in air support. So Marco picks up some sort of magic staff bazooka and <laughs> shoots it at what he thinks are landfallian bombers but what we come to learn was actually just a civilian car he blew away the father and we see this horrific panel of the child screaming dad mm. and this triggers a series of quick flashbacks as we basically travel through some of the most traumatic moments of marco's life all the way back to his childhood it's a really creative and beautiful set of panels here that are mm -hmm. sort of like overlaid over each other in small little boxes. Mm -hmm. And we just see single flashes of memory. Yeah, it's really, really well done to show like somebody regressing back through a bunch of past memories. And there's one of those panels actually that shows Marco shoving a sword through the chest of what looks like a royal robot, which I'm like, I don't know what that is. There's a story yeah. we've never heard. Yeah. Nevertheless, all of this has gotten Goose worried that it's getting worse. And he's like, Prince Robot the Fourth, you got to do something. So he's made Prince Robot the Fourth call the Robot Surgeon General in his Robot Surgeon General office, where we have kind of a cool robot skeleton in the corner of the office. So you get to see that <laughs> robots have like a metal human skeleton for some reason with their cathode ray tube head. Yeah. And the Surgeon General is like, Prince Robot the Fourth, what the fuck have you gotten yourself into? And Prince Robot the Fourth is like, don't worry about it. I have some non-robot folks who have taken too much fade away. What do I do? The robot's like, oh, they need to purge it out of their system. And the best thing to do that is actually give them some of your blood because it will make them vomit. Mm. And we don't know exactly how this happens, but the last panel in this sequence is Gus like creeping towards Prince Robot with the chopper being like, you don't <laughs> say your blood is toxic, which is kind of yeah. amazing. Yeah. Looking cute as always. Then we're right back into Marco's flashbacks. And this time we get to see actually what happened after he beat up the neighbor girl with a scene that's all in blue, but the meanings are 100% clear, even without an Esperanto translator. Barr is very, very disappointed in Marco that he has attacked this girl, does not care that he was just defending his dog. And as soon as the neighbor girl is gone, he rips off Marco's shirt and whips him with his belt in this truly horrific abuse scene. Yeah. And then we get these close-up panels of Marco's face at the time whispering this word, Duncan, which means thank you. And we see that that translates actually to the real world where we get Marco now back in bed, having presumably purged the fade away from his system, just saying thank you over and over and over again. Yeah. He then wakes up. Apparently, all of this bad trip has caused him to have some kind of breakthrough about his past and his guilt. 
And now he knows what he has to do, which is find the man who took his wife and kid and, quote, cut his fucking head off. So apparently uh, no more pacifist Marco. One bad fadeaway trip and he's ready to fuck shit up. Yeah. Wow. And that wraps up chapter 27 and today's reading. We got a lot of background information about Marco today, a lot of character development, and surprisingly, not a lot of action. Most of our characters, the three basic scenes, have sort of remained where they are. Not a lot of plot movement forward, but we're setting up what's to come in the back half of volume five. And we still learned a lot about some of our main characters as well. So plenty to discuss. But first, before we dive into our takeaways and share our favorite panels and quotes, we're going to take one more quick break. Don't go anywhere, folks. Lots to talk about still. Quoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Welcome back. So time now for our takeaways from this reading. And Abu, kick us off. What was your takeaway from these chapters? So my takeaway here was about violence. There were a number of violent panels in today's reading. That's nothing new for Saga. That's something we've discussed in the past as well. But I think today's reading had a lot to say about violence. And it's sort of place in society and its place in this story as well. It seems to me that this story is trying to make a point, a very pacifist point, that violence is never the answer and that violence always begets more violence. There are a number of examples of this in today's reading. We learn about Marco's trauma, something that's been haunting him since childhood, since that moment that he attacked his neighbor. Mm-hmm which led to his father beating him, which led to his outbursts on the battlefield, which led to, you know, it spiraled and snowballed. Mm -hmm. Violence led to more violence, led to more violence, no matter the intent behind it. Of course, this war is nothing but violent. We've seen that time and time again in all 27 chapters thus far. And it's affected everyone, including our main characters and the folks on Landfall and Wreath and now the whole galaxy that's been sucked into this war. There's also the way the brand wants to approach this dragon semen mission. The brand's strategy here is, let's go in, I'm going to lance this fucking dragon, and you go in and cut its balls so we can grab 
the the you know blood jizz or whatever. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's so gross. <laughs> but it isn't until Sophie's like, wait a second, what if we just try talking to the dragons? Right. That anything progressed, right? They were at a stalemate. They were about to get eaten by a bunch of dragons until Sophie had the idea of trying a nonviolent approach. Mm-hmm. All of these examples are seemingly set a, setting up this theme where Brian and Fiona are trying to make some sort of commentary on violence that perhaps violence as a reaction to violence just perpetuates this cycle that continues forever and ever and ever. In fact, there's even another example. Now that I'm talking, we learned that Dengo took these violent acts for a reason and then got in touch with the last revolution people who we know are straight up terrorists out here beheading people. Mm. And he's starting to realize his mistake. He has taken violent actions that have led to other violent actions. And now he's partnering with people who are perhaps even more crazy than he is. Mm. And it's interesting to try and parse what Brian and Fiona could be saying through all of this, because while it feels like a pretty straightforward pacifist anti-violence message, Marco does come out of this bad trip at the end with a realization that is dramatically different than the Marco we know thus far. We've only known pacifist Marco. Now we saw his past, saw all the violence of his past, and he wakes up and realizes, oh, I need to go back to that person that I was. That is how I'm going to save my family. And that could be interpreted in a couple of different ways. I'm interested in what you think of his last line there, Alan, but I read it as regression for his character. Like, I didn't see that as progress for Marco. I didn't see that as growth. Mm. I saw that as him through this trip, through his memories, through his trauma, just being like, okay, this is the way it is. This universe, my life, everything has been violent so far. I need to up the ante on the violence in order to protect my family. If that's what I have to do, that's what I have to do. And he's no longer taking this high road that we know is classic Marco. What did you think, though? I'm curious. So that's interesting. And it leads into my takeaway. Because for me, Marco's pacifism has always been like, Marco's a pacifist because he wants to tell people that he's a pacifist. He talks about it a lot. He talks a big game. And I think that for him was covering for him having to engage with this abuse and violence that had been a part of his childhood. So once he's able to actually engage with that through this trip, it frees him to really relate to violence in his life and complexify it a little bit. Yeah, I think Brian and Fiona are trying to say about violence in these chapters that you can't ever just say black and white, violence is always bad or violence is always acceptable, that there is a lot of situations and that they are complex. And, you know, really this entire story is about this, right? It's about war and violence as a medium. Literally from the first panels of the first chapter, we see Marco, you know, being totally violent against those soldiers that are trying to get his family. And and I think that everything in this story is just more complicated than it initially feels. Yeah. And I actually don't think we're going to really find out what Brian and Fiona think until we get to the end of this story, which, you know, they've said there's going to be 108 total chapters. We are just at chapter 27 here. So that's a quarter of the way through. So we've got a long way to go to figure it all out. Yeah. And I'm sure these characters have many more adventures ahead of them, too. I think you're right on that. Yeah. So the way that relates to my takeaway is another thing that it seems like Brian and Fiona are presenting in a sort of mixed or complexified way is drug use. 
Fade Away is obviously mm. very prominent in this story. That's a classic sci-fi thing, right? Like to have some sort of drug into the story. Thanks, Frank Herbert, for making Spice preeminent <laughs> in Dune and forever including drugs in all sci-fi stories. Even new Star yeah. Wars was just like, oh, can we have a drug called Spice? Certainly no one's ever done that before. Part of that. Tell us how you really feel. <laughs> I mean, I, there's a history reason for that, and it's because a lot of the early sci-fi writers were experimenting with psychedelics in the 60s and mm. 70s, blah, 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 mm -hmm. blah, With this story, I think that the prominence of fadeaway is just going to increase, and we're going to learn that it's much more prevalent in society than we think. We learn from Yuma in these chapters that lots of soldiers are on fadeaway to deal with the horrors of war. Yeah. And we've seen that fadeaway can have super negative consequences, right? Like Alana uses it to run away from her problems and detach herself from her fear. And it hurts her relationship with Marco and also makes her a shitty parent, right? Like when she's on fadeaway, she is not present with her kid. And she is definitely a net negative in Hazel's life when she's addicted to fadeaway. Right. But there is a very intentional, I don't know, nod to the way that Marco is able to use fadeaway to process his trauma. Yeah. And the way that it enables him to really confront that all of his relationship to violence and such goes back to his father abusing him after he committed this act of violence against this other child. And he's not able to engage with that or really deal with it at all until he's in this fadeaway trip. And hmm. you see that where he comes out of the trip and he says, quote, for the first time in a long time, I feel like I understand my wife and it's not just Alana. I think I finally understand myself again, unquote. And there's some parallels to our real world, right? Like there is more and more research being done that shows the effectiveness of hallucinogens like psilocybin, which is magic mushrooms, or even ketamine for the treatment of depression or PTSD in cases where talk therapy alone doesn't yeah. work, right? Like there is a world where these drugs can unlock parts of people's minds that they can then investigate to process trauma or help them get through stuff. But like violence as well, and most things in Saga, Brian and Fiona, I don't think are trying to make us think that drugs are either good or bad, but just much more complex than that. Yeah. Which is probably honestly a good way to approach anything in life, right? Like nothing in life is totally good or totally bad, everything in its own right. And we just need to keep remembering that and not put things into boxes and completely dismiss them out of hand. Yeah, that, that nuance is so important. And I think you're spot on. There have been moments in this story where drug use is just normal or mm -hmm. even beneficial. Like think of the actors. Oh, yeah. They're getting through their jobs through because of fadeaway. Or, or even Alana, right? Like Alana is a shitty performer until she's high while she's performing and it, it unlocks something in her that enables her to connect with the characters more. Yeah. And look, is that Brian and Fiona saying you should do drugs to be better at your job? No, that's not what they're saying at all. But they're clearly saying that something about this drug helped Alana deal with another issue in her life, which helped her then mm -hmm. tackle her job and her stress and her emotions. And I think Yuma points to that as well in today's reading where she's like, yeah, I never pressured Alana into taking fade away. She needed it to find peace, mm -hmm. right? Alana was dealing with a lot in volume four. We mm -hmm. talked about that on the podcast, but fade away was the thing that helped her find some release and find some control back in her life, even if it did harm other parts of her life. And that, that's where the nuance comes in. There's this balance of how much fade away she used, how much it affected her life, and how much it helped her. And I think you're right. I think when it comes to 
both violence, our first takeaway, and drug use, Brian and Fiona aren't trying to make any declarative statements. Mm -hmm. This is good. This is bad. Do this. Don't do this. I don't think they're here to say this at all. They're exploring these ideas and these themes through this story and through these characters and revealing to us both the good and bad that's involved in any of these activities. Like sometimes violence is necessary. Like Mm -hmm. there's a war going on. Sometimes people have to defend themselves. And sometimes the drug use maybe is the thing that helps you deal with the trauma, like in Marco's case, or at least process it or even think about it in a way that you were avoiding before. Mm -hmm. I know like microdosing is like really hot right now. (laughs) I've never tried it or anything. It feels like a a trend that'll go away, but there's obviously some sort of benefit to it or people wouldn't be trying it. But yeah, I loved your take on, on this and I think it applies to the first takeaway about violence as well. There, there's a lot of ideas, a lot of big ideas, mm-hmm. war, love, family, peace, being explored in these chapters and in this story. Mm-hmm. And I think it would be foolish to read into it in a very black and white way because sure. it's not black and white, just like reality. Right. And that to me feels like the main point for Brian and Fiona, that like any absolute value judgments are just going to make your experience less interesting and ultimately you know lead you down a path that won't serve you so the, the only objectively bad thing is getting pissed on by a giant dragon <laughs> i think that that's pretty black and white for me i don't know how others feel about that i love it when they cut back and they're just like dripping wet with pee <laughs> Ew, <it's> so gross <laughs> all right well speaking of panels where people are dripping wet with pee was that <laughs> one of your favorite panels from uh, this chapter of it wasn't, no. Most of the P panels were quite disgusting. <laughs> and w- wonderfully drawn, but disgusting. My favorite panel from today, and I want to apologize actually before I share what my favorite panel is, because from this point on in the story, now that Goose is a part of our journey, all of my favorite panels will simply be the one he's the cutest in, in that, <laughs> that episode's reading. I would apologize for that, but I truly can't because I'm not sorry about it. My pick today then is the panel where Prince Robot IV is sitting awake in his bunk, while in the bunk above him, Goose is snoring away and looking so cute and so cozy. It is adorable. And just so I can justify this pig, let me dive deep a little bit on this panel. If you zoom in and enhance the image a little bit, you can notice that he has some bed snacks. (laughs) They look like maybe pretzel bites of some sort. Maybe they are. Oh, no. I think there's a little fish on the cover. I think they're like dried Ooh. fish because he's a seal. He's a seal. Some some fish chips. I love it. Bed snacks. It's not good for me. I'm closing in on 30. My stomach can't handle that. But clearly Goose is fine. Look at him. He's peaceful. He's snoring away. Bed snack away, my guy. There also appears to be... At the foot of his bed, some sort of instrument case Mm -hmm. or maybe just like a small round suitcase that he carries around with him. Mm -hmm. I love it. He's a light packer. He travels light. Great for road trips. I'd want him to come with me. It's also obvious from the dialogue bubble in this panel that Goose is a very loud sleeper. He is just snoring away, which is, again, once again, extremely cute, but also makes me wonder... Is there not a solution for that in this universe? Does Z-Quill exist or does it not? Brian, I need the answer. 
I, I love this so much. I absolutely just like <laughs> slid right by this panel um, because I was following the action of Prince Robot waking up. Yeah. I didn't even notice the snoring until you pointed it out. And it looks like it's Goose going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like yeah, making yeah. The, mo- the cutest little <laughs> cartoon snore sound that he possibly can. Yes. I also love his little like pajamas, like with the butt flap and everything. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so good. Yeah, we get some more of that in the in the subsequent pages. It's oh, yeah. adorable. It's, it's so amazing. Cute. I personally went back and forth a lot on my favorite panel. I wanted to talk about maybe the wraparound cover for chapter 25 as my favorite, just because I love the way it ties all three groups of characters together and represents everything that the story has been so far and where it's going. But I decided to stick close to the assignment for once and just go with a <laughs> single panel. And mine is the single panel right after all the dragons finally understand Sophie telling them to be friendly because mm. you can almost hear them all going. Yeah. <laughs> There's like a cartoon, like a Saturday morning cartoon vibe to the way Fiona has drawn all the dragon eyes where they're like, Rawr! Record scratch. Plus, there's the way that yeah. Gwendolyn is just like nonchalantly dangling from the main dragon's mouth by the Will's cape. <laughs> Everything is just like the whole scene stops, record scratch. There's been all this action and it's stopped because Sophie has shouted, Let's all just be friendly. Just everything about it was just very comforting and it was this moment of just pure joy. So, thank you for that, Fiona. Yeah, it's an adorable panel and it certainly feels like a record scratch moment. No dialogue, cut wide on the camera. And everyone is just frozen in place. Like, what did she just say? <laughs> Even Sweet Boy's head is like cocked to the side the way that dogs do when they're confused. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. delightful. That's a great pick. It's it, That's such a wonderful scene. I mean, there's a lot to say about the dragons as well, because they're not like typical fairy tale dragons. You know, they're like salamanders or something. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Let's talk about our favorite quotes to wrap up today's episode. What was yours, Alan? So I talked about this a little bit as we were going through the chapters, but my favorite writing in all of these chapters is actually this Hazel narration that's strung together throughout the entirety of chapter 27, which if you connect it all together, it goes like this. And I'm gonna read it all, but I feel like it's important to get it like all as one big chunk. Mom always said that having a kid means a rapid expansion of your social circle, whether you like it or not. Each day pulls some strange new somebody into your family's orbit, and you just hope they end up doing more good than bad. Being a parent pretty much ensures that you'll never spend another minute alone. Sounds like a nightmare, right? Yeah, welcoming a young person into your life also means letting in an endless parade of new oddballs. Pediatricians, daycare workers, parents of playmates, the list goes on and on. It helps if you're good with names, otherwise you just end up calling everyone chief or big guy. (laughs) This is the moment when Dango begins to suspect that my mom had been right. Why hadn't he been more careful about allowing strangers into his home? Just as you will now forever acknowledge every time that Gus is cute, I feel like I will now forever acknowledge every time that Brian interjects some parenting experience into this story. He wrote this book after having become a parent, and it's just this thing. I'm not an extroverted person, Abu. You may know this about me. And one of the (laughs) hardest things for me about being a parent is all the times that I have to socially interact with somebody that I in no other way would want to. Not in a bad Mm. way, but it's like, playgrounds man when you take your kid to the playground you just have to like stand around and then if your kid starts playing with another kid you have to walk up to that kid's parent and like introduce yourself and it's my fucking i hate it yeah i hate it (laughs) i hate it 
I remember reading this the first time and having no kid back then, I was like, why would this be so bad to have so many new people with your life? And yeah. now as an adult, I totally get it. You spend your entire like single life in your 20s and 30s getting to be incredibly selective about the people who you spend your time with, right? Like you get to, you come out of college where you were forced to interact with a lot of people who maybe you did or didn't want to in classes. And then you get to just choose your social circles, right? You get to choose your friends, right. romantic partners, et cetera. And then all of a sudden, when you have a kid, there's all these people you have to interact with. There's also, as alluded to in this chapter, in addition to the social awkwardness, there's the fact that some of them might actually be dangerous, right? So you have to just always be on guard about the new people coming into your life. Yeah. Dango apparently was bad at that. And now they're all fucked because he's brought these terrible people into their lives, which is definitely a thing when you have a kid that you think about more, just like the casual people that you want to bring around because your kid's going to interact with them and that's going to affect them for the rest of their life. Right. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that you're always on guard at the playground. It's a very dangerous place to be, you know? <laughs> I mean... You never know. Being a parent is always being afraid that something terrible is about to happen. Or maybe that's just being alive in 2022. Yeah. What about you, Abu? What was your favorite writing from these chapters? So you took the Hazel narration, and I didn't want to repeat by also picking Hazel narration. Outside of that, uh, I actually had a bit of a tough time picking mm -hmm. a favorite quote from today's reading, because mm -hmm. as we talked about, it's a lot of sort of background stuff, character stuff, setting up stuff, not a lot of plot movement and not a lot of action. So what I ended up landing on kind of ties into our discussion from the takeaways earlier. The quote that I picked is when Prince Robot IV says, quote, if you really think we're going to finish this mission without taking a few worthless lives, end quote. And he trails off there at the end. Mm. That ties into our discussion about violence earlier. Mm -hmm. Clearly, Prince Robot IV looks at this mission in a very black and white way. He is going to do whatever it takes to get to his child. And if that means <laughs> killing a few randos along the way, then he's not going to bat an eye. He outright was like, let's just get rid of Yuma and Marco, throw them out the airlock. They're in my way at this point after he found them ODing. The harsh reality of all of this is that perhaps the prince is not wrong here. As tough as it is to agree with him, they're on a very dangerous mission mm -hmm. up against some very dangerous people. He's being callous about it, calling these lives worthless, but... The prince knows how rough the universe is. He's also a veteran. He's also been on the battlefield. He's seen some shit. He's royalty. There's a lot of expectations. He lives in the shadow of his brother, as we learned in the previous volumes. To me, the prince is this like more pragmatic counterpart to Marco's idealism. The role that Alana often played, now the prince does. Mm -hmm. Marco can find himself in a position where he's super idealistic and takes the high ground no matter what, even if it's more dangerous for him and his family. And people like Alana and now the prince have to be like, no, we should definitely keep some weapons on us because we're walking into danger. Yeah. That doesn't necessarily mean that Marco's philosophy is wrong here. Uh, in fact, I agree with Marco's philosophy, but sadly in this universe, as Brian and Fiona have set up, and you know, unfortunately in reality as well, that kind of extreme idealism, again, that, that idea of black and white, doesn't apply to every single situation, and especially not in this brutal, war-torn galaxy that the story takes place in. 
these families are being chased by two warring superpowers. And Marco has now allied himself with the robot <laughs> prince hitman that was trying to kill them. Right, right. And, and like the situation calls for some extremes. And yeah. I think the prince knows this and Marco is still, you know, dealing with that trauma as we talked about and still hung up on his idealistic views. So that quote did resonate with me because it makes it clear what Prince Robot the Fourth's role is so far in this story and in Marco's life. He's the one that's going to be out here shooting first and asking questions later. Well, it also, there's one word in that quote that I think betrays a lot about Prince Robot's character, which is the word worthless, right? That word doesn't need to be in there. Yeah. You could just say, nope. if you think we're really going to finish the mission without taking a few lives, that's what you or I or anybody would say. But referring to beings as worthless is something that you do only if you think you're better than them, if you're royalty, right? Like it just shows you yeah. that he very clearly was raised in this situation where he's royalty, everyone else is commoners. So fuck it, kill some commoners, who cares, right? It shows you that feudalistic structure that the robot planet still has where people of royal blood are literally worth more as beings than anybody else, which is terrifying and awful. And you kind of forget that that's actually how a long period of time in human history was. I've been reading this manga, Vinland Saga, that's all about the Viking era. And there's a similar thing, yeah. right? Where you have like royalty merchants and surf class and like the surf class is literally worthless to the royal class and clearly prince robot subscribes to that belief which is why when marco was beating the guy to death he was like yeah fuck it beat that guy to death or when he was like ah oh, these fucking people are druggies throw them at an airlock like yeah lives of non-royals are worth nothing to him right it really reveals his worldview which doesn't seem like somebody you'd want aligned with you if you know that he doesn't think that your <laughs> life is worth anything. I can't yeah. imagine that will go poorly. Yeah, for real. Uh, well, that wraps up today's episode. What a wild set of chapters. I know we say that like every time in every episode, but, but you know, it applies to every episode. All killer, no filler, man. There is not a chapter of Saga <laughs> that I've ever read and been like, oh, that could have been better. Like even these ones yeah. that are doing a lot of table setting are still so rich. Yes, absolutely. Well, a couple of programming notes before we sign off. Up next, we will be diving into the back half of Volume 5. So before the next Deep Dive read-along episode, make sure that you have completed Volume 5 and read through Chapter 30, because we'll be diving into those chapters next. Yeah, and I said this last time, and I think I'm just going to start campaigning for this. If you're not all caught up so that you can engage with us in the Quick React episodes, I would strongly advocate for you doing that. Not because I want you to listen to our podcast episodes, but just I can't imagine reading this book and then stopping yourself. Like the story's so rich, keep reading, push on through, yeah. read it many times. I'm on read through number five and I notice new things every time. So I'm just yeah. gonna keep saying the new stuff is very, very good. If you wanna read ahead of our read along episodes, go ahead, blaze a trail. More saga in your life will only make it richer. We promise. Truly, a story that keeps on giving. Well, friends, two minds can sometimes improve the odds of a podcast survival, but there are no guarantees. So leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and be sure to check out the other shows on the Lore Party Podcast Network at loreparty.com. You can also follow our network on Twitter and Instagram at lore underscore party. Music on this show was composed by Lawrence Kelly, who makes all kinds of amazing music. Thank you for listening. And remember, podcasts are fragile things, but just like Alana, Marco, and Hazel, 
we'll all just keep on exploring and learning even when we can't be together. <laughs>